Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is March 3rd, 2022, and I'm very pleased to be with your, be here today with my friend and colleague Yusuf Munayer. Yusuf is a non-resident fellow at Arab Center, Washington, DC. He is well known and highly respected in the Israel-Palestine intellectual space. Having worked on these issues for years, he's written widely and published widely. And you can follow him on Twitter at, at Yusuf, Y-O-U-S-E-F, Munayer, all one word, M-U-N-A-Y-Y-E-R. Yusuf, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome back to Occupied Thoughts. Sure thing, it's good to be with you. So Yusuf, I wanted to have you on the show today. You're someone who I've looked to for years um, to, to learn from, to challenge my own thinking around boycotts, around BDS. Um, I think you, in my mind, you have been one of um, the clearest thinking, clearest eyed, most consistently um, thoughtful with integrity on these issues. I've learned, I've learned an enormous amount from you over the years. And I thought of you last week when I was putting together my legislative roundup at the end of the week. And I thought of you because when I was pulling together all the different quotes, I found a tweet, which I'm gonna read out here from um, Congressperson Garcia, who is a Republican from California. And it was a Twitter thread about what's happening in um, Russia and the Ukraine. It was on February 24th. And it was you know, highly, a Twitter thread criticizing the Biden administration for their, their um, policy on Russian oil, blah, blah, blah. But here's the, the, money, the money quote from this tweet. Uh, Congressman Garcia said, quote, Putin's actions would require a full boycott, divestment, and sanctions package, no exceptions. And I thought, wow, he has learned the phrase boycott, divestment, boycott, divestment, sanctions, and seems to be without any problem at all deploying it here with full force in this context. Um, which is extraordinary coming from a member of Congress if you just use the word Israel, words Israel Palestine in place of Russia, Ukraine. So I want you to talk about that, um, what we're seeing here today in terms of the widespread embrace, celebrating, demanding, calling for, endorsement, endorsing of every kind of boycott, divestment, and sanctions people can think of with respect to Russia for its military assault on Ukraine. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's quite an amazing uh, moment, and I think as as you point out in this quote from the member of Congress, there is um, really a sort of moment of, of of unanimous consensus around the legitimacy of these tactics, which is I think you know not something that we could have said among sort of um, you know the opinion among policymakers and elected officials previously. Right. Uh, in fact, it's been quite the opposite. Uh, and there's a whole list of uh, excuses and reasons uh, that uh, they've they've found and they've made to say that, no, boycott, divestment and sanctions um, are not uh, good, are not uh, to be used and so on. But here, you know, is a member of Congress using those very words, right, to say that um, this is how we should demand accountability for 
um, international law violations and human rights violations, uh, you know, committed by the Russian government in Ukraine. And I think it's very important for us to be clear here. Um, there is there is no doubt that what is taking place in Ukraine is a brazen violation of international law uh, and an act of uh, aggression against a sovereign nation. Um, and you know, in a system where there are rules and and there are laws and there are international agreements and treaties and standards and things like human rights, acts like this should trigger consequences. Uh, the problem, of course, is that that's not always how it works. Uh, and there is a double standard uh, of uh, holding uh, Israel to a um, position of impunity, holding Israel to a position uh, of, um, you know, uh, allowing it to get away with the kind of things that we obviously would not uh, allow uh, many uh, others to, including in this case, the Russian government, right, in, uh, in Ukraine. So I think one of the things that's really important about this moment is that so many of the, you know, talking points that have always been flimsy, right, uh, in opposition to the use of these tactics uh, are, uh, are going out the window very quickly. And many people who have been on record opposing boycotts, divestment, and sanctions are now leading the charge for boycotts, divestment, and sanctions. And the only difference, of course, uh, is uh, the fact that the victims look different. Um, than uh, than in Ukraine than they do in in Palestine, uh, and I think those those double standards are crystal clear to many many people uh, in this moment. The um, I, I want to get to some of those those arguments that have been used and sort of just take them out one by one. But I I do want to. There are people who will argue, it's sort of like the apartheid discussion. They say, well, you can't use the word apartheid when talking about the situation in Israel-Palestine because it's not exactly the same as South Africa. And you know, we have seen, we saw a thread on Twitter a couple, the past couple of days from the head of the Anti-Defamation League. We saw an article in the Jerusalem Post. There seems to be an urgent need to argue that because the situation facing Palestinians under Israeli rule in the West Bank and Gaza since 67 and Palestinian citizens of Israel not getting exactly full rights. This is why the apartheid language is being used by groups like Amnesty and HRW uh, since 48 since it's not exactly the same as being invaded by Russia, then it's absolutely illegitimate to even talk about them in the same breath. Can you, can you just take that on? Well, the, there's no shortage of uh, excuses and deflection. And I think, um, you know, uh, perpetrators of gross human rights violations, people who are systematically violating international law, whether they be the Russian government uh, in Ukraine or uh, the Israeli government in Palestine, are going to come up with all kinds of excuses to justify their behavior. That, I think, should be expected. Um, and, you know, the, this kind of deflection of saying, well, this situation doesn't look exactly like that situation. Um, okay, sure. No two situations look exactly alike, but you know we, we have human brains that are that are capable of understanding that while an apple and an orange don't look and taste exactly alike, they're both fruit, right? Um, and they don't have to both look exactly be alike to alike to fit within a particular definition. Uh, and uh, there is no doubt, as has been 
documented voluminously by every human rights organization worth noting uh, and various international organizations from the United Nations and beyond that what is taking place uh, in Palestine, the actions of the Israeli government constitute violations of international law and systemic human rights abuses. So, you know, you can find whatever name you want to attach to that, whether it's apartheid, whether it's uh, invasion or occupation. There are people who will tell you we shouldn't use the word occupation either. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's very clear that there are systemic violations of human rights uh, and, and international law taking place because of Israeli government policy, and that demands accountability. Uh, and I think we are seeing a willingness to hold violators accountable in the case of Ukraine, but we're not seeing it, of course, um, in the case uh, of Israel. And I thought, you know, it was it was really stunning the way that we saw the United States um, in this past week uh, rally the international community at the United Nations uh, to pass a resolution or attempt to pass a resolution at the Security Council condemning the actions of the Russian Federation in Ukraine, knowing full well that Russia had a seat as a permanent member on the Security Council and was going to exercise its veto. And the position of American diplomats and other Western diplomats has been reported is this is going to show the extent to which Russia is isolated um, uh, in the uh, international community um, for its position uh, towards uh, Ukraine. And there wasn't even, you know, a, a moment uh, of reflection uh, on, on the hypocrisy. Um, of the United States demanding this form of isolation when it itself has been in this position of isolation at the United Nations Security Council time and time again, as it's been the single solitary veto on United Nations Security Council resolutions condemning Israeli violations of international law and human rights. Um, so we, we are clearly uh, saying that human rights violations, international law violations, are only going to be up, uh, uh, held to account um, when, when our enemies are behind them and, when, and not when our friends are the ones perpetrating them. And, and I think that's a problem. It's a problem not only morally, um, but if, if we actually want to see a world where international law matters, where international norms are upheld, um, we, we cannot simply wield international law and norms as instruments of power against those that we dislike. We have to uphold them and enforce them when we are complicit in them as well. Um, and, you know, when our, when our friends who are sending billions of dollars of military aid to every year are committing these crimes, we're not doing anybody any service uh, by, um, uh, by allowing them to do that. Uh, with impunity. We are creating a world where might makes right. And it is the kind of world where um, acts of aggression, like the ones that we we're seeing on display in, in Ukraine this week, uh, are going to be more likely, not less likely. So picking up on the first part of the conversation, let's talk about some of the arguments that have been marshaled against BDS. And, and here we're not talking just the question of whether or not it's government policy, whether governments boycott or use sanctions or divestment, but just at the popular level, whether people 
are allowed to boycott or whether it is delegitimized, whether it's treated as not just um, not a welcome act, but an act that is that, that delegitimizes the person who's doing it. That, that means they're an anti-Semite. It means they're a bigot. It means they're discriminating. Let, let's run through some of those. Um, the, the, I, I can offer a few and you can add some. I mean, I, I went to the ADLs page and there's a stop BDS organization and, and I sort of, you know, distilled that down. It, it, it's striking. I mean, there is the unfairly singling out. Well, I can't imagine anybody says it's unfair to single out Russia right now. But, you know, if you single, if you say, well, you know, at a popular level, people want to boycott Israel. They say, well, what about China? What about, no, I don't hear anyone saying, well, why aren't you also launching international boycott against China? Or why are you not kicking China out of, you know, whatever sports events or whatever? I mean, you've got the whataboutism. You've got the unfairly targeting innocence, right? So if this, in, in a comparable case for, for Israel-Palestine, the argument would be, if you're boycotting Israel, there's lots of Israelis who are good Israelis, who want to make peace, who maybe don't support the policies that you oppose, and you're going to actually hurt them and make it harder to make peace. Um, I love the one which is that it's complicated. This, 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 this is too complicated. You can't you know, just jump in and boycott. There is the, this will be counterproductive. It'll actually make things harder. It makes the sides dig in more. There's a whole list. I don't know if you want to comment on any of those in particular. Um, I would ask you if you want to talk about what's striking to me in the past couple of days, which is what's happening with sports and culture. Um, and you tweeted, I think, this morning about cats, um, FIFA, Eurovision, and cats. You want to talk about those? Because FIFA and Eurovision, there are direct parallels to things that they have done with respect to Palestine. I don't think the cats, there's a direct parallel, but it, it is interesting. Yeah, so I guess uh, the uh, International Cat Federation, and I'm I'm sure that's not their name, but that's just what I'm calling them because I don't know what the exact uh, title of their organization is. Made some made some decision today or yesterday saying that you know Russian cats would not be permitted to enter into international competitions and and so on. And and I think you know, sort of jumping off of what you said to to start your question that I think is important here. When we talk about the Palestinian call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, it's important to understand the context that that's happening in, particularly when it comes to the boycotts and divestment, the non-state level sort of actions um, that are part of the, 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 the BDS, right? The B and the D. These are actions that Palestinians are calling for in a very particular context, a context in which we are not seeing state-level sanctions directed uh, at Israel to hold it to account. Uh, and it is a call for civil society actors to uh, use their institutions, to use their spaces, their power, their platforms to demand accountability in part because the state system is fundamentally failing to do so. Um, and not only is it failing to hold Israel to account through the channels that exist, right, to hold violators of international law to account, um, it's actively enabling them as well. The boycott and divestment efforts that we are seeing directed at Russia right now uh, are happening in addition to massive state-level sanctions that have been enacted immediately, 
right? Um, and so I think that's an important distinction to draw in terms of the kind of response uh, that we are seeing. Uh, this is, you know, and, and, and I think it's important that there are civil society efforts as well as state level efforts to hold um, violators to account. This is all happening very quickly um, and, and significantly, whereas Palestinians have been calling for this kind of action uh, for years only to see you know, their, uh, their calls um, uh, not only be rejected in many corners, um, but criminalized as well in many places uh, around the world, which is, which is particularly outrageous. Um, so I think, I think that's important to, to note here about some of the differences. And also when it comes to this issue of, of singling out, um, you know, uh, Israel. I don't think there's any, the, the, the call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions is a Palestinian call. It is a Palestinian call for international solidarity, uh, for the redress of Palestinian grievances because of the occupation of Palestinian territory, the discrimination against Palestinian citizens, and the denial of the rights of Palestinian refugees. There is only one state that is behind the occupation of Palestinian territory, the denial of refugee uh, rights to Palestinians in their homeland and the discrimination of Palestinians that live inside of Israel. That's the state of Israel. We can't single Israel out because it's the single country that is doing this to Palestinians, right? Um, likewise, the Ukrainians can't single out Russia because there's only one country doing what Russia is doing in Ukraine, right? So it's just absurd to suggest that uh, we are singling out the single country doing this. No, we are identifying them because that is who is behind it and they should be held to account for their actions. And, you know, all of these excuses and, and propaganda points that you point to um, are not even original. You know, we heard these same sorts of things from the apartheid South African government uh, during the anti-apartheid movement uh, when they said, uh, at the time, you know, they may not have said, what about China? Maybe they did, but they said, well, what about other countries on the African continent? You know, blacks have it better in South Africa than anywhere else in Africa. And, you know, the whole, the whole uh, gamut of excuses, you know, and, and, um, uh, and talking points were deployed then. Um, it's, it's very simple. Uh, if you violate international law, if you deny human rights, you must be held to account. It doesn't, it doesn't get any simpler or clearer than that. Um, and, you know, anyone trying to make it more quote unquote complicated is uh, deflecting and obfuscating from what needs to happen. Well, it, it seems that the current, the, the current crisis um, really highlights um, your last point, because the bottom line is I don't hear anyone saying you know, with, with the Palestinian case, it seems to be an equivalent of all lives matter, which is the argument you can't boycott everything. Any, you can't boycott Israel unless you're boycotting everything. You can't protest Israel unless you're protesting everyone. You can't have a cause you care about related to Israel unless you care about every single cause equally. Otherwise, you are ipso facto an anti-Semite. Um, you don't see anyone using those kind of arguments in this case. Um, and and it, it's it's you know, moving forward, you know, this question of the, the if for years the arguments marshaled against BDS in the case of Israel-Palestine have been the whataboutism, the unfairly, all the tactical arguments, none of those apply today. Those are all off the table. And I guess my question is, again, looking at the, the fact that the ADL felt moved to, you know, 
published a long thread explaining why, no, absolutely not. This is not the same. And Jay Post had an article, as I said, should they be worried? I mean, looking ahead, the, 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 you know, the point of, I think, when I listen to my, my Palestinian friends like you talking about the current crisis, I don't hear, this, this is not a matter of what about is. I'm like, well, if you're going to boycott you know, Russia, you also have to boycott Palestine or Israel. You, I don't hear that. What I hear is saying, you have to, if you're recognizing legitimacy of these tools as forms of pressure and, and, and protest in this context, you, know, you have to recognize that it's hypocritical to just reject them out of hand in the Israel-Palestine context. Is that framing, do you think, going to make a difference going forward? Um, is it going to shift minds? Should Israel, sh- should the folks in Israel who, who have spent years investing in delegitimizing these tactics, not just the movement of BDS around Israel-Palestine, but the tactics writ large, should they be concerned? Well, I, th- I think they are concerned. Uh, and I think, as you've noted, the fact that, um, you know, Jonathan Greenblatt felt it necessary to come out with a Twitter thread and the Jerusalem Post felt it necessary to come out with an editorial among, among others, you know, reacting to this moment in this way shows, shows that there is a significant degree um, of concern. And look, um, there is a whole host of people um, today uh, who down the line uh, will have to explain uh, why they supported boycott, divestment, and sanctions uh, to defend the rights of Ukrainians, but refused to do so um, when it comes to the defense of the rights of, of Palestinians. Um, there is a long list of and, people and, not just, and, and, and institutions. Not just, and not just refused to do so, actively worked to, to, to quash it. I mean, right. we're seeing legislation across this country aiming at quashing and delegitimizing it. We're seeing the rise of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism being weaponized specifically for this purpose. We're seeing this being used to quash free speech on campus, free speech. The, I saw there was an article in, in Haaretz a couple of days ago, Israel is more worried about fighting Ben and Jerry's than, than speaking out on Russia. It's, it's extraordinary. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, but I mean, that's the level of hypocrisy really. It, it it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And I think, um, you know, this is going to be an important reference point um, moving forward. Uh, you know, this is a, a, a massive event that has attracted the entire world's attention. Um, there's no uh, denying that. This, of course, being the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, it uh, is the, um, the the center of attention when it comes to foreign affairs and uh, diplomacy, and there isn't a uh, government that has not taken a position on it or has not tried to formulate a a stance towards both both parties. Um, so you know, I think all events moving forward on, on the international stage are going to be seen through the prism of this moment in history. Uh, and uh, that will inevitably affect the debates that take place moving forward. And people will say uh, the next time that, you know, uh, we see sort of a uh, major uh, escalation uh, in Palestine, like maybe the one that we saw last year uh, in May, um, there will inevitably be a different conversation that is informed by the historical moment that we are, uh, that we are living through. And I'm sure uh, that the defenders of Israel's apartheid policies understand this uh, and are concerned, because it's a lot harder to say what about China um, at, at that point, uh, when it's clear that that is a nonsensical uh, excuse. 
and talking point uh, today. You know, I haven't heard anybody mention the Uyghurs in the past week, uh, which always seems to, um, you know, be at the top of concerns when people call for accountability for Palestinian rights. Uh, and this is uh, not to minimize in any way what um, minorities in China are going through, of course, like the Uyghurs. Um, but it is just to make the point that there are plenty of, of people who only seem to care uh, about those issues when they can be used um, to uh, uh, further the abuse of the rights of others, which I think is um, really tragic and, and, and really pathetic. And this, this week uh, only underscores that. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that has been, um, for, for those of us who have argued for years, and you were arguing this long before I was, th this idea that the, the impunity that's afforded to Israel um, it's not good in terms of the rule of law, rule of, you know, international norms, all of that, you know, for the world, right? If Israel has impunity, that isn't, not saying a direct cause effect, but, you know, if the, if the world is not going to hold Israel accountable, then it does look like it's a hypocrite when it tries to hold someone else accountable. That's a problem. I've been struck over the past two weeks, like I know a lot of people have, by the fact that images from Palestine have been mistaken for images from Ukraine and used in social media. You know, suddenly there's enormous support and, oh, sorry, that was Palestine, not Ukraine. Sorry, don't listen. And I was struck this morning looking at the, the visuals coming out of the city, which I'm not going to remember the name, that was horribly, horribly shelled last night by the Russians in Ukraine, which looks a lot like what Gaza looks like after um, an Israeli um, assault. And the outcry against the destruction of civilian infrastructure, the targeting of civilians, which in the Israel-Palestine context, when this happens in Gaza, you hear, oh, but it's complex. Oh, but, and the extent to which we've heard Putin's people, Putin and, and his folks using arguments that sound almost exactly like what we hear from Israel, right? Which is that, oh, they're hiding the terrorists hiding behind civilians or, you know, existential threat, or, I mean, it's it's been, uh, again, there's a piece in 972 this week or a few days ago laying out how, how to how the similarities in the, in the framing. Um, I guess the last thing I want to close with, and I mean, this is bigger than the question about BDS, but it goes to the broader question of impunity, which BDS is related to. Um, where do you see this, this discussion going um, in the United States? We have a, a grassroots, which I think is a progressive grassroots, which is I think increasingly recognizing um, that the threat to free speech is broader than maybe they understood. For folks who haven't been watching, it's uh, I've been documenting the the how the anti-BDS legislation is now metastasizing into legislation targeting the right to protest the fossil fuel industry, um, the guns and ammunition industry, and no doubt there will be other things. Um, where do you see this going um, in the United States um, in the coming, say, decade? Well, I think in the short term, it's it, uh, the coming decade. I it's 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 hard it's hard to say, but I think in the short term, we should only expect that this is going to escalate. Um, look, we're clearly at the stage right now where um, the I think the Israelis and their supporters have accepted the fact that even here in the United States, where they've had a tremendous amount of support, um, they're not winning the argument. Uh, the only way that they can win the argument is to prevent the conversation from happening. And this is what you are seeing with all of these 
uh, efforts to uh, criminalize or um, uh, you know uh, make uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions call somehow taboo or or uh, illegal. Um, it's it's an effort to prevent the conversation from happening because once the conversation happens. All you end up with are, you know, flimsy deflections or talking points. Um, And, you know, people see through that. Um, People see through that more and more every day. Um, And I think because of that, and because, as you note, there is a rising tide of a younger generation that is, you know, less likely to to put up with this this nonsense, um, is that uh, those kinds of repressive efforts are probably going to escalate. Um, and I think we, uh, you know, we need to be prepared uh, for that to happen. I think over the long term, um, I don't think it will be successful. But that doesn't mean they aren't going to try like hell in the, in, in, in the, in the meantime, uh, which is why it's, it's very important um, for us to point out exactly when and how this takes place. You've cor- you, of course, have been at the forefront uh, of doing so, and not just, you know, when it comes to uh, Palestinian rights advocacy, but rights advocacy, period. And we're seeing this, of course, turn into all kinds of efforts to silence dissent against, um, you know, climate policy or gun policy or what have you. So um, this is uh, becoming a, a a big issue, and and you know, it's it's not um, uh, it's it's not uncommon uh, for repressive tactics to proliferate um if um if 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 one um you know group or constituency sees that they work sure they're going to borrow uh these uh tactics so this i think um absolutely represents a, a threat to advocacy writ large rights advocacy writ large um and needs to be uh called out uh and opposed but to answer your question uh, succinctly, I think we're likely to see more of this in the immediate short term, pr- precisely because um, the Israelis understand it's it's the only way to hold on to the status quo. More and more people are demanding change, um, and they're not putting up with the um, the what about China's uh, and the um, Palestinians have it better here than anywhere else or whatever excuses uh, they come up with to justify their behavior. Thanks. I think we're going to have to stop it there. I, I completely agree with um, with that comment. I think I think that is exactly where it goes in the in the period ahead. And I encourage people to watch this closely. Um, one way to do that is by following Yusuf on Twitter and looking for his writings, which are superb. Another way is to follow the constant research that I publish just to make sure that everyone is as worried as I am. Although people who are happy about this look at that same research and say, yay, we're, we're doing well. So it's uh, data is data and it, it should be free. So you can find that at www.fmep.org. Yusuf, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out today to join me. I will hope to have you back again soon. Um, thanks to our listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Occupied Thoughts. I encourage folks to check us out online and subscribe. You can do all of that at our website, www.fameki.org, Spotify, SoundCloud, all of those great things, iTunes, um, and that way you won't miss any other great work that we're doing. So with that, we're going to end it here. Thank you so much. And until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts, farewell. <laughs>